Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 256, air date April 12th, 2018. Welcome to South Coast Matters. I'm Paul Latendra. Today back with me is my occasionally absent co-host, <laughs> Julie Taylor. Welcome back, Julie. It's Thank really you. good more, to have you back. More absent than not. I know. <laughs> well, so Paul, it is good to be back. And today we're pleased to host independent candidate for U.S. Senate, Dr. Shiva Ayadurai. Hope I said that right. You did. Great. Great <laughs> to be here. Well, Shiva holds four degrees from MIT. He's a Fulbright Scholar and has started seven successful high-tech companies, including Echomail, Cytosolve, and Systems Health. He's currently the founder and CEO of Cytosolve, Inc., which is discovering cures for major diseases from pancreatic cancer to Alzheimer's. Shiva wow. is also the founder of the Center for Integrative, Integ is it integrative? Integrative, integrative, integrative Systems. Yeah. Systems that performs fundamental research and systems thinking and is home to innovation course. Uh, when we talk to him, we're going to see hear the name syst word systems, and um, and one other word we're going to hear a lot too. There, yeah, email, email. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could go on. We only have twenty eight minutes for the show, but he has a long background. Before we talk about all those achievements, I want to hear about your background. Now, you came here from India. You, you have a very compelling backstory, an amazing backstory. You were born as a despicable or a uh, untouchable in India, and um, that caste system is now defunct, though, as I understand. No, the caste system is still, you know, active. You just don't hear a lot about okay, it. Okay, okay. Um, it's not as formalized. <coughs> no, I mean, my mom used to say in India you could get discriminated nine different ways, but in America three. Okay. <laughs> and you know, if you worked hard enough, you could even overcome that in this country. So. It's, I'm sure it's been a long road from Mumbai to uh, Cambridge. Now, were you born in Mumbai? or? I was. I was born in, at that time it was called Bombay. Okay. And then yeah. they changed the name to Mumbai. Okay. But I was born there, you know, in 1963. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had two different um, experiences in India, which a lot of people today don't even have. You know, one experience was in the city of Bombay, or Mumbai, yeah. which, which is an enormous city, correct? Enormous. <coughs> it's like if, if New York is a melting pot, you know, Bombay is like an industrial furnace. Mm. Okay. You have every religion, every caste, every, you know, hundreds of different languages. And then... In Were you raised in a Hindi religion? Hin yeah, I was brought up as a Hindu. Okay. Uh, but, you know, Hinduism is such a disorganized religion. It mm -hmm. basically believes God's and in everything. So, you, you know, you basically... There are hundreds mm -hmm. of Hindu sects, aren't there? Hundreds of different sects, but you. But the fundamental thing is, you, you know, my grandmother's home was a small farmer. You had the picture of Christ, and you had the pr picture of Krishna. All of these uh, great avatars, right? Okay. So, but I grew up in Bombay, but I also spent at least, you know, at least a third of my life in a small village uh, in deep South India. So it's okay. as different as New York, as Mississippi okay. would be. Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. outbacks of Mississippi. So you know, I had these two very different experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and my grandmother, you know, used to work 16, 18 hours a day wow. in the fields. She was a poor village farmer. Um, but on weekends... I've heard the story. Yeah, but, the story. but on yeah. weekends, you know, she was uh, uh, trained in traditional systems of Indian healing. She was a medic. She was a medic. And, and you know, if you go look at all traditional cultures, um, even in this country, every uh, town, every village had a, the local medic, right? Yeah. In those days, it was literally a shaman or a healer. 
And my grandmother had learned the traditional ways of healing people, which include the use of herbs and spices and meditation and yoga and all different modalities. So it was, and, and it was always personalized. So it recognized everyone was unique. You were a unique you, you were a unique you. And you, you, if you both have the same ailments, you would have to have very different types of uh, uh, treatments, right? So it was, today we call it personalized medicine. But that was a part of traditional um, uh, medicine that existed for thousands of years. So my grandmother, for example, uh, used different methods of diagnosis. You know, in the Indian system, you use pulse diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But one of the more um, interesting ways is you could observe someone's face. And the theory is, you know, the face never lies, mm -hmm. which means that the face is a window into the physiology of the body, right? So d different organ systems, dysfunctions, et cetera, presented in the face, your imbalances. And the idea is that you could understand when people are healthy, when they're not unhealthy, what organs are not unhealthy, and then you would support people to get back into balance through diet and food. So in the Indian system of medicine, all disease had always one solution, which was diet and nutrition. You know, and, and the idea was to bring people back into balance. So my grandmother, you know, on weekends, 20, 30, 40 people would be lined up, and she did this for free. Her view was that medicine was an honor to serve people, that you were not supposed to charge for it. It was supposed to be something you gave freely because it was, a, it was an art form. It was uh -huh. an information science and an art. Now, would she mix the medicines and give them to them or tell them how to? No, she would mix them. She okay. would mix them. So I remember as a young child, I remember someone had a sinus issue, mm -hmm. and she sent me and my uncle into the woods to get this very particular herb. And what's interesting is she put the flower in the guy's nose and she tapped it. This flower has microscopic needles, uh -huh. and it relieved, you know, you saw a little bit of blood come out because he essentially had a clot. Yeah. So these are things that are learned over, you know, many, many... And it worked. And it worked. Yeah. And, you know, now we're discovering, uh, I think a few weeks ago, there's a big article in the Daily Mail, a woman who had cancer, wasn't working, she took uh, significant doses of curcumin, which uh -huh. is the active ingredient in the... In the uh, in the herb called turmeric, which is a root, yeah. which, is the, which is a yellow root, a brilliant yellow, which is the active herb in curry. Curry is mm -hmm. a mixture of spices. So, you know, the reality is these people tested stuff over thousands of years, and they came to conclusions of what did work and what didn't work. So, but that was really my motivation and a deep interest in medicine and science. How could this woman who had tattoos all over her arms, you know, who you would consider uneducated, how was she able to heal people? Um, and that really drove my interest in medicine. How, now, who did she learn all of these skills and knowledge from? It's a, it's a great question. You see, we think people have to go to universities. Mm -hmm. um, but the way people used to learn was one-on-one -on -one mentoring and apprenticeships. You, it w you would have to sometimes work for someone, and then they would teach you these secrets. So she was actually born in Burma. Um, you know, Burma was known as a center of Buddhism and, and cobras, <laughs> right, both of those. But she learned from people who would come along the way, and she'd study with them. But this was always one-on-one -on -one training. So, you know, you were passed on ancient wisdom, right? It's not like you have to go to Harvard University, right? You was study this one-on-one. -on -one. Was she your mother's mother or your father's My dad's mother. Your dad's my dad's mother. mother. Okay. But similarly, my mom's mother had a whole other set of traditions, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the women in homes were considered the healer. It was an integrative art, right? Women healed. They, they served the communities. They did many things. Uh, it wasn't that they just had children, right? They were uh, professionals in some sense. That's fascinating. How did, okay, now, how did your family move from, end up coming to the United States from Bombay? What circumstances led to that? And uh, 
and being from the lower caste must have been um, a leap. Just to it was one in a trillion. I mean, if you if you really look at it, Paul, yeah. okay. the fact that my mom and dad even met, and their own is basically it's like they're pretty amazing people unto okay. themselves. My mom came from a broken family. The father ran away with the maid when she was she was one of nine kids. My dad grew up in war-torn Burma, literally in foxholes, you know, uh, and then he literally walked back to India, you know, at, at, at the age of 10 or, 10 or 12, had never studied. Um, but they were both very, very interesting people in the sense something in them drove them to realize that education was the key to liberation. So my mom as a, now think about this, these are low caste Indians, and my mother is at a time when women are never supposed to get educated, uh, not supposed to, essentially supposed to get married and serve a man. So here my mom stands up on her own two feet, realizes that the father ran away from the mother, and she decides she's never going to let that happen to herself. So there's a picture of my mom, in this very interesting picture, this dark-skinned Indian woman among 50 men with turbans, this little woman sitting at the corner, and she, that was when she got her master's in statistics. I think she was the first woman in India to do that. God bless her. Wow. Yeah. And then my dad came from another origin, came back from Burma, and then he studied under a mango tree, someone who taught him. And he ended up becoming an engineer, and ended up becoming the head of manufacturing for a guy in India. So my parents did not have to come to the United States. This is what's fascinating. They had very good jobs. They were the, in some ways, India's brain, brain power. And if you remember, after when, when Sputnik had gone up, right, yeah. in the 50s, the United States uh, was very motivated to build their technology base. So they, uh, I forget the exact act, I think LBJ had signed it, and, and, and uh, the act allowed uh, immigrants to come to India based on merit. Mm -hmm. They had to have very particular occupational skills. <coughs> so here my mom was a statistician, good in math, and my dad was an engineer. My dad came here first. We had to wait about a year. Um, and, you know, I remember them having to submit, you know, hearing them, their resumes, their reference letters. It wasn't like they just came here. Um, so that's how my parents came here. And I was interesting enough, my dad actually came here for training. And there's a company called Unilever. Um, yep. big, so there was Unilever Indian. They had sent him here for training, I think in 68. And the people here said, you don't need training. We can actually use your talent. Okay. And so, but he didn't want to jump ship. He went back to his boss in India and asked him permission. He said, you should go. It's a great opportunity for you and your family. So my parents didn't need to come, but they came for my sister and I because they thought this was a huge opportunity to get, you know, much more educated, much more freedom. Mm -hmm. right. So that's how they came. So you won't find a lot of Indians like me because we're of that, like you said, the untouchables. So when we first came, we settled in Patterson, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So think about this 1970 Indian, very traditional Indian family. Um, coming to the United States, I remember. Was there uh, mu much of an Indian <coughs> community in Pakistan? Very little. Oh. I mean, it's primarily African Americans, okay. right? Mm -hmm. But it was interesting. It was it was like Bombay in some sense. Remember, this is uh, the era of Vietnam, yeah. sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. So it's a very colorful environment. You have huge cars, right? Yeah. Uh, bell yeah, bottom jeans, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, so it was a very interesting world for us to come from India at that time, mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, you know, so now were you an Anglophone at the time? Were you speaking English? When well, in India, remember, British yeah, had British had come to India, yeah. and whatever, but Battle of Plassey, sixteen fifty-seven. Yeah. So um, we, you know, British was a common standard language, yeah. right? So okay. I could speak English. Um, I did not know anything about snow. I remember landing in Kennedy Airport on literally December fifth. We left on my seventh birthday. Oh wow! Three days later, we landed on December fifth, and I remember walking off the stairs. 
and I was wearing shorts, and I remember it snowing. <laughs> so that was my first experience of snow. Never had seen anything welcome like it. Welcome to America. Yeah, welcome <laughs> to America. That's right. So you, you grew up in Patterson? Is that where you well, went to so, high so, school? So, yeah, so here's the interesting thing. My parents always believed in education. Now, now Patterson was one of the poorest cities in the United States. So uh, my parents, whatever money they'd earn, they kept moving to different public school systems. There wasn't school choice per se, right? right. And my parents were very much into anti-elitism. It's an interesting part of who they were. So they didn't believe in private schools, nor could they afford it. Mm -hmm. So we went from Patterson to Clifton, little town, a little bit better uh, school system. And then about a year and a half later, we went to uh, Persephone, and then later to Livingston. And if you look at the income levels, you know, Livingston is predominantly Jewish town, very wealthy people, and Patterson is primarily African-American, very poor people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So they just kept hopping to the different school systems. So in seven years, from 1970 to 1977, um, we literally went through four different school systems. But I took advantage of that because I knew what, a, what, you know, what an incredible opportunity that it was. And I was compelled to do that because I knew when I went back to India, I think 75 I went back, that's when I realized the stark difference between America and India. You know, like how much we had it here. Mm -hmm. And I was so thankful. And I remember coming back when I was told that I, I decided I was going to work very hard and take advantage of this opportunity. So by, so by the time I was 14, I'd finished up all my math courses, calculus. Um, my high school had no, no other courses. I was actually taking college level math and got accepted to a special program at New York University. This is in 78 now, mm -hmm. when a um, computer, for example, would fill up the size of this room. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but there was a very, very uh, innovative professor at New York University who just passed away last year, Henry Mullish. He realized that America would need skilled labor of software engineers. And in fact, he was visionary enough to realize that maybe we should train these high school students. So he selected 40 students out of a national competition who would get to come to New York University, the Corant Institute of Mathematical Sciences. And I was one of those 40 students selected. Even though I wasn't eligible, you had to be in 10th grade. I was in ninth at the time. And my, mo my dear mom would drop me off at the Newark uh, Penn Station, 14-year-old mm -hmm. kid. Mm -hmm. And I would take the one and a half hour train ride in at 6 a.m. into New York, take this course. It was like a military type intensive computer science course. Eight weeks, graduated top of the class, learned seven programming languages. And then in after eight weeks, you learned seven. It was intensive. It's like you know, it's a computer language. Yeah. You got up at eight a.m. until eight p.m. Sometimes we stayed longer. But think about this: parents are afraid to send their kids down the street. This very different environment now. You know, walking through Washington Park yeah. where people are selling drugs and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the environment that I grew up in. And then after I finished that, I had some high school humanities courses left, and I was very fortunate to get a full-time job as a fourteen-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey, uh, in a medical hospital. And the job I was given was to do programming because I could program pretty good, you know, uh, because computers were just new. And I was given an interesting challenge. Were they, um, were they punch card <coughs> programming? Yeah, so I, I knew how to do punch card programming. Yeah. But in that year, 78, you know, micro mini computers were just coming, the Hewlett Packard mm -hmm. mini computers. Yeah. So I was given a job um, at a uh, guy who's still alive, Dr. Les Michelson. He's a head of high-performance computing at Rutgers. This was at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in Newark. Uh, it just got absorbed into Rutgers. And many of you may remember that in 1978, um, the environment is interesting, just to take you back to that, what role did women have? What were the jobs that w a woman could do? Typically four jobs. 
-hmm. woman could be a nurse, a housewife, a teacher, or a secretary. Mm -hmm. Well, in this medical hospital, it had about a thousand offices, um, every doctor always had his female secretary, and the secretary always had a desk. You remember this? And on the desk, she had a typewriter. Mm -hmm. She had white paper where she type away a thing called a memo. But on the desk, she had an inbox, an outbox. She had huge file folders behind her, a trash bucket, paper clips, uh, whiteout, right? And yep. she, when she wrote a memo, it had a very particular structure to, from, mm -hmm. subject. Sometimes she did a thing called a carbon copy, mm -hmm. where I, you know, I, I would still write. Smell a, carbon copy. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I would write a memo to you, and I would say, I'm going to CC you, yeah. and so she'd have to put the one paper, the carbon paper, another paper, and click away. If she had to do 10 carbon copies, she'd be writing there probably for a couple of days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, and then that thing got, you know, sometimes if you were hiring someone, you would write a cover letter, you would attach their resume, and you'd forward it to people in the organization. Everyone made comments, and it came back. Um, that was the inner office mail system, mm -hmm. and that was the way people communicated, collaborated. It was the thing before social media. And I was asked to convert that entire system, a very complex system, into the electronic version. Yeah, 15 years old? 14. 14. Now you've got to understand there were methods, we're not talking about electronic messaging, simple text messaging. You could do a little, you know, that's like the yeah. telegraph. We're talking about that whole system. I wrote 50,000 lines of code, used to work until 2 in the morning. The rule that Dr. Michelson had was he goes, I will treat you like an adult. So I used to come in with my briefcase, I used to work, <laughs> very serious. And, uh, you know, the people there were typically 30, 40, 50 years older than me. And I called this system email, a term never used before in the English language. A few years later, I got the first U.S. copyright for it, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. So that's what I learned as a young kid in Newark, New Jersey, and then went off to MIT. So you came here when you were seven and did seven different school systems by the four, time... Four different four schools. Four different school systems yeah. by the time you were 14. So how were you accepted by the populations in the different towns that you lived Sounds in? Sounds like you didn't have time to be, do any, any social life. Well, you know, I played... Uh, I had a lawn mowing business. Okay. I played baseball. In fact, it was American it. Legion Boys State. I was in varsity baseball. So, so the thing is, I, my parents brought me up never to segregate yourself into being a nerd. Mm -hmm. So it was hard to, you know, for, you know, I was with the jocks and I was also could, you know, I was the best student in a class of, when I graduated Livingston, you know, 800 students, I was, t I think one or two, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I got accepted to American Legion Jersey Boy State, which is you have to be an athlete and a scholar. So that was sort of the thing that my dad really believed in, in this concept of being wholesome in that way. What position so, good advice. did you play? I played short and pitcher. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was pretty good. Um, so the interesting thing was, to answer your question, you know, uh, you know, 1970s were an interesting time. I mean, you had Maharishi coming here, the, the Beatles were into meditation mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. yoga. So people were very curious about Indians, mm -hmm. right? Because there was this whole yeah. undercurrent of interest in alternative types of uh, experiences. Yeah, water pipes were the big thing. Yeah, yeah. All, all those things, right? So, so, so I never, you know, so I grew up among working class people uh, people of color, you know, in, in Newark, it was my friends were the custodial workers, the secretaries, etc. And you have to understand, when you look at the invention of email, it would not have been done without women. Mm -hmm. It was those secretaries who were my, where I took the notes on what that system needed. So I was exposed, fortunately, to everyday Americans, you know. It wasn't an elitist environment. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I never experienced any level of discrimination among that strata of people. I experienced it more when I went to that elite high school in my last three years. 
okay. know, yeah. I experienced more levels of discrimination there than I did in Newark, than I did in, uh, you know, in Clifton or Precipitate among everyday working class people. Hmm. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I, I do want to back you up. Uh, are your folks still alive, your parents? My dad is still alive. He's 85. My mom passed away about six years ago. Okay. Mm. Now, and you came here with your sister? My sister, yeah. Now, how is she doing? How is she? She uh, went to Harvard Medical School. She's a... God uh, bless her. Yeah, yeah, she's a medical doctor and uh, occupational health doctor. Okay. But you hate Harvard. How the hell did she get in there? Uh, never mind. That's, well, well, we'll That's the next that. show. Okay. Well, <laughs> well the, yeah, the, the thing is, you know, I'm against elitism. Yeah. Okay. And basically the notion that you have to get a stamp. Look, I did email before I came to MIT. Yeah. In many ways, MIT got a great student. MIT, many of these uh, Ivy League institutions actually get really good students mm -hmm. and actually rubber stamp them. I would argue that the students are actually serving those institutions more nowadays, particularly with so much education being online. Right. You know, they're essentially getting the branding of those institutions. Does your sister integrate any of your grandmother's teachings she's, into her She's actually a profession? cannabis doctor. Oh. Okay. God bless her. Uh, she basically believes in medical cannabis, but I guess she took that route, which is essentially r recognizing that there's, I mean, she's really, uh, she's a believer that, um, that, you know, that, uh, you know, the whole addiction problem, opioids, these pharmaceutical drugs mm -hmm. uh, are really the real problem that many, you know, like cannabis can actually be a healer for that. So I guess she has that element. With is her. she local or is she? She in, is. She's in, local. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But so then, how did you get from New Jersey to Massachusetts just uh, by MIT. virtue of going to well, MIT? Well, what, it's an interesting story. See, but you got to understand, I was one of these overachieving kids. I, I built this email system, yeah. done all this stuff. I actually did not want to go to college, believe it or not. I actually wanted to do carpentry and design. I still love doing a lot of art and design work. Uh, my parents in my senior year had gone to India for about two months to take care, to, I think to take care of my grandmother. And my mom was always helping people and she had helped these two women who were actually, were homeless. Uh, uh, and they didn't have a place to stay. I think the, the husband had thrown one of them out. Mm -hmm. And so she let him stay in our basement. We had a basement apartment. Uh, uh, one of the women's boyfriends came over and he said, you should go to this place. And he gave me the brochure, it's called MIT. <laughs> and, I, and I remember it, it said Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I thought it was, it was a mental institute. Because <laughs> the dome, it was too much, yeah, right? right? And I said, right. I'm not gonna go to this place. So two weeks later, I, th I think the application was due three days, he said, I'm not gonna leave until you fill this out. So despite him, I took a pencil and I filled it out. Now the MIT application had an interesting part of the application, you had to draw a cartoon character. Hmm. It was Beetle Bailey was mine. Uh, you know, yeah. I think uh, Mort Walker just passed away recently. So anyway, I get accepted and I come to MIT for the orientation, whatever, for the looking at what the place was like. And I saw all these people look completely unhealthy to me. <laughs> now I was an athlete, I was strong, I lifted weights, you know, and these guys look crazy to me. Hunched over, they, you know, a 17 year old kid looked like he was an 80 or something. So I was a little bit turned off by the whole place, and I said, I'm not gonna go to this place. And uh, then finally, my physics teacher said, oh yeah, I should have told you that's a good school. See, then after I got accepted, then you know there was a level of discrimination in that school. Sure. Then people started telling me, because then it was kudos for that high school. Sure. And so my physics teacher said, you should go not because of MIT, but you like Boston. It's the Athens of the world. Well, not only that, Cambridge seems like you would fit right exactly. in. Exactly, Cambridge melting pot and, and melting pot, the, you know, all the yeah. arts and science, yeah. etc. So that was a reason that I came. So on September, I think second, I came to MIT as the orientation. On the front page of the official MIT newspaper, they listed three kids 
they said, you know, we have an inter interesting class, 1,041 students coming, and they listed three kids who had done something interesting of note, and, and, and it said, there's this kid who built this email system. <laughs> now, I was brought up as a humble Indian, so mm -hmm. I said, well, that's interesting, and I moved on. Um, but that's what, you know, so I came to MIT as an undergrad, uh, but I was really interested in systems. I had enough credit to leave MIT, I believe it, in two and a half years. But I was interested in this caste system. You know, I was interested, I think my interest had moved beyond science and engineering because mm -hmm. I sort of mastered that as a young kid. Mm -hmm. So I started studying with a guy called Noam Chomsky, mm -hmm. who's a pretty left radical thinker. Why, mm -hmm. were the, why was there a caste system? And I sort of figured that out. So I got a very much interested in political systems. Um, uh, in 1983, 84, remember Jesse Jackson was running for office, mm -hmm. remember Reagan, mm -hmm. and then there was Mondale, and, there's, and there was this thing called the Rainbow Movement. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. said, that's interesting, it's anti-establishment. But then at the last minute, if you remember, Jesse Jackson sold, gave out all of his votes to Mondale, yeah. the lesser of two evils mm -hmm. argument. And that's when I broke with both parties, and I started studying politics more heavily. And that's when I realized that across the world, across the United States political history, there were always three dynamics of systems. I'm a systems guy. One was the establishment, those people who enjoyed keeping things the way they are because it profited them. And then there were another dynamic called the change agents, everyday people. You know, like in the time of Susan B. Anthony, you know, the Democrats laughed at Susan B. Anthony when they said that women should get the voting rights. She went on onto the streets or the civil rights movement. I realized it wasn't really Martin Luther King who did that. There was other people's names we don't even know. Um, and it was movements that changed things. And then I realized there was the third part of the dynamics was the not-so-obvious establishment. The people who claim they want to help these people on the street. Um, but what they actually do is they exist to take the anger of people who actually are the change agents and say, you know what, you don't need to do that. You know, join one of these two parties. And if you look at this last election, here was Hillary Clinton. I mean, the dynamics are so amazing to watch. And the Romneys and the Obamas, the Clintons and the Bushes all came there, right? Because they were so scared of a guy over here called Donald Trump. Whether you like him or not, he was an agent of change. And in the midst of that, the not-so-obvious establishment was Bernie Sanders, right? Because what does he do? He uses the word revolution hope, and at the last minute, he gives his votes to Hillary Clinton. So from a political theory standpoint, I think by the time I was 18, 19, I'd become pretty sophisticated. And I became pretty, uh, an activist on campus. We started a, a newspaper. I, I organized the food service workers. I made sure more women, uh, poor whites, poor blacks came to MIT. Uh, so I became a real, in addition to being an inventor scientist, I was also very, very interested in change. Like what are the dynamics of change? Mm -hmm. So systems yeah. guy, you know? So I went in and out of MIT. Uh, I, that, would, that, I would go to MIT, did my first degree, started a company, came back to MIT did another degree, would go start another company. So like that, I went in and out, one foot in academia, a little bit of a love-hate relationship. And another thing, I'd build stuff and actually learn how to sell it and start businesses. It's, you know, the American innovation. It's always good to continue learning, to never definitely, stop learning. Definitely. So it's good that you I go think this whole concept of, you know... This whole show's about learning. Yeah, we're learning. Yeah. You're teaching us today, and all our guests teach us. And I always learn much more from my guests. And and from well, you learn by <laughs> teaching, by the way. That's true. Believe it or not. You That's learn, true. you take a concept, one is doing the, the homework, the other is when you have to teach, there's a very interesting dynamic that occurs with humans when you teach. So that's where they find that you don't really need a teacher. In many ways, you learn by teaching. Right. Animals do this all yeah. the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. A younger kid will do this with an older kid better than the parents can even teach. Yeah. That's true. Yeah.
That's a good point. So you you make your home in Cambridge now? Yes. Uh, Belmont. Belmont. But oh, my office right is in door. Cambridge. I pretty much lived all over Boston, probably in yeah. 10, 20 different towns. Over the I, I came here in '81, so I've been here almost 36 years now, 37 years. Oh. So you're very well grounded in Massachusetts. Definitely. That's good. Yeah. And the road from Mumbai to Cambridge is certainly a long, bumpy road. I'm glad I I'm glad we know that part of you. Yeah. Good. And we're almost out of time, but I, I need to read this quote because um, it's about democracy. And we're going to get you back and we're going to talk about democracy and government and business and how they relate to each other. But our democracy, in the end, is a difficult, costly human endeavor. We must be free enough to pay its cost, which means having the time, the energy, and the education, and the care. You've got to give a crap to self-govern. Then and only then can we be citizens, otherwise we're just subjects. And I love that quote, it's Umer Haig, Haig, mm. I'm not sure. But um, he's a brilliant man. And um, I'm Paul Attendra, I want to thank Dr. Shiva Ayadori. Thank you to Kim Murphy, Ben Fortier, and Walter Sabina at TCAM TV in Taunton for the use of their studios and their valuable help without which this show would not exist. 